All right, let's all take a big, deep breath together. <sighs> Here we go. While we have two more weeks to go after this, I will probably say that this week is both the deepest and the most mind-bending content that we have encountered or will encounter. And I don't necessarily mean the hardest, because I can't really get beyond chapter 9, but maybe the most mind-bending. And I think I'm going to borrow a little bit of time from last week and go a little bit longer, like maybe six or seven or eight or nine minutes longer uh, than normal, based on all the stuff we have to cover. Fortunately, with these studies being recorded, I might even recommend uh, taking some time to connect with today's content a second time, kind of like if you watch a really complex movie, it really starts to make sense after you see it a second time or more. So that's the nature of today's content. God, help your people understand. We need you. It all starts with occasion three of four of John's being in the spirit. Verse three of chapter 17. We've covered it twice at this point. This is the supernatural overpowering of John that takes place at four pivotal points throughout the book of Revelation. They're like four signposts. Uh, there's the beginning of the letter. There's before the throne. There's here preceding the fall of Babylon. And there's the coming of the bride of the lamb, the new Jerusalem, kind of like four signposts of the letter of Revelation. And the frantic and desperate enemy exhausts all its stores of deception and intoxication and temptation, force, and dependence that it holds. And the lure and the intoxication of such tactics are really good. Right here, chapter 17, John sees the prostitute. This is a figure developed from some seriously obscene imagery in Nahum, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah. And because we're not gonna focus on those passages like they would require in order for this not to just be about shock value, I'm gonna tell you that they are there, and then if you can buy tickets for an R-rated movie, you're free to study them yourself. The power of the prostitute is in the nature of her seduction and drunkenness, drunk from gorging herself on the oppression and the blood of martyrs and idolatry, all things that we should be very wary of even in our world today, even in our own country. Just like we asked why the image of a dragon a couple of weeks back, this week we're asking the question, why the image of a prostitute? God wants us to see what misplaced worship and allegiance looks like, feels like, from his point of view. The church is my beloved bride. And the prostitute, one that lures her away and lies to incite unfaithfulness, is a lustful, deceiving, destructive temptation and desecration of the good thing that we have. Leviticus 17, 7, my people must no longer offer their sacrifices to the great, the, the goat idols to whom they prostitute themselves. A prostitute in nature offers 
fleeting pleasure of the world, distorted and perverted apart from the fulfilling sexual pleasure that God intends within marriage. And she'll offer this pleasure to anyone willing to pay for it. And boy, do people pay for it. She represents the great city, Babylon, and all Babylon-like centers of earthly power, Tyre, Persia, Rome, and so on. There's a rich blend of Old Testament images and the songs of judgment that feel very aggressive when we come across them in Old Testament passages. They find their consummation here. Isaiah 13 and 23 and 34 and 47, Jeremiah 50 through 51, Ezekiel 26 through 27. This is how the lure of nations, self-made power and pleasures, this is how it looks in God's eyes, like a prostitute. And chapter 18 is her prophesied destiny. Chapter 18, this is actually a sort of a celebration of and lament concerning the destiny of the prostitute and about the self-destruction and downfall of all like nations. Babylon, Tyre, Edom, and now Rome is the newest version of this old, repeated, feudal pattern. Humanity in rebellion against God. A portrait of the human condition throughout history given away to their ultimate chosen destiny. Whether we worship or wail at this depends on who we have chosen to give our true allegiance to. Practically, this chapter shows the great danger of worldly wealth and self-sustaining economic pursuits. Now, it's not that in the whole of the Bible, it's not that economic pursuits and employment, economic endeavors are bad, it's just that the world, the beast, the prostitute uses the good things that God intends, working the earth to seduce people with riches, entangled in dark political and economic forces. The lure of wealth can lead to idolatrous relationships and be an idol in and of itself. This is why the Bible tells us the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Both then and now, be aware, church. This chapter ends with a surprising twist, though. After being defeated by the lamb, the desperate and destructive beast turns on the prostitute and will destroy her. Why? Well, like we asked at the very beginning of week seven, what does a defeated enemy do? There's surrender, and that's simply not going to happen with this enemy. And then there is desperate destruction, even upon itself. Rivalries among the opposers of God is what's portrayed here. You simply don't want to be a part of the losing side, overcome by the forces of the kingdom and given away to their own self-destruction. Chapter 17, verse 17, tells us that God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over their royal authority to the beast until God's words are fulfilled. The enemy will 
forever be destructive in nature. And if he fails to have the power to overcome the kingdom, then like we talked about last week, God will give him a way to apply that destruction to itself and to its people that follow it. This is why we call this week the futility and the fall of rejectors. Chapter 19, we're moving at a pretty good pace so far. Really long way to go. (laughs) The choir of heaven erupts over the downfall of the blasphemous, treacherous opposition. Hallelujah, they exclaim. Fascinating note, by the way, uh, hallelujah, that word, meaning praise Yahweh, is mentioned four times here in this chapter, and that's the only time in the New Testament, this chapter, the only time in the New Testament that that word is used. It's, it's spread across Psalms, and then just right here in this chapter. Kind of interesting note there. And since we got to this chapter so quickly, I want to slow down a bit and explore God being celebrated in light of the downfall of his enemies. Because this may not be as challenging for us as the exploration that we took last week on a fully righteous God being proved righteous even in the pouring out of his wrath and his judgment. But as a theme throughout history and throughout scripture, God is celebrated not just in times of joy and pleasantries. God is celebrated also in the ways that he is showing vindication and judgment, and justice, and vengeance. Like we talked about last week, it all has to do with the way that the Lord finds people and nations right where they've placed themselves, in the positions that they've placed themselves. This is kind of scratching the surface on the question, how could a good God send people to hell? Listen, every single person destined for hell, was on their way there by their own choice, by their own waywardness. God made a way out. In perfect love and common grace, he chooses to allow people to have a choice. And it's not merely the appearance of a choice or a choice that's superimposed with irresistibility behind it. It's a very real choice. And when people give themselves away to themselves or anything apart from devotion to the Lord, it's an eternal condition and they become beast-like. That's what sin does. Where you and I can so often downplay sin like it's just breaking rules sometimes here and there, it's picking sides. Take sin Seriously, it desires you. The more you feed that cancerous nature, the stronger it's gonna grow. And over and over and over, God tells us it's deadly. It leads to a separation from the source of life and goodness. And on the biggest scale of things, which is what Revelation invites us into, God stands while all apart from him will fall. The Lord and the ways of the kingdom forever endure when confronted with opposition. It's like a futile little threat that any 
piece of his creation thinks that they can actually stand against him? How could his creation ever think that they could master up even a threat to the one that created them? When we see both the futility and the enmity and the great patience of our Lord, even while we were still enemies, that is great cause for celebration. The saints and the angels of the choir of heaven, they see things on that level. And they rightly rejoice the superiority of their king. And it's not just superiority, it's also wondrous love. Let me turn to verse 6 of chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Like we asked, why a prostitute? Why marriage? Chapter 19, verses 6 through 10, marriage is much more than friendship. Marriage is much more than just affection. It's even more than devotion. Marriage is a sacred metaphor for the unparalleled, exclusive relationship. In this case, even between an unfaithful bride and a grace-filled groom. Paul says, this is a profound mystery, talking about the marriage of Christ and the church. And at this point in Revelation, when the prostitute has been fully dealt with, the bride shows herself ready in endurance and faithfulness. John's eyes are wide with amazement and wonder. He's, he's so impressed by what he sees here. And he also records again for the people of the seven churches to read that, that he actually forgets himself again. Gets a little carried away now for the second time. Verse nine, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold, up to, who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. It's funny again that John loses it, gets carried away again. But, but don't miss the reason he was in such awe. The angel said, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb. Hey, seven churches, you're really gonna wanna endure to make it to this banquet. You're really want, going to want to be there on the last day. You're invited. Just like we don't celebrate the letter of the invitation or, or don't celebrate the microphone, we celebrate the singer, the voice. Don't Worship experiences or messengers. Worship God. And then Jesus appears. Chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. This is awesome. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped 
in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A name written that no one knows but himself. That doesn't apply that it's a secret. It's that the divine nature of Jesus can never be exhausted. It's the divine nature. It's an eternal task for God's people to know Jesus better and better. And it's a never-ending task. We'll never get to the end of it. No boredom in eternity. Jesus comes forth as the word of God riding on a white horse ready to conquer evil altogether and for all of time. You might have some fun uh, comparing Jesus's entry here with his triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11. And we've said it for weeks. What he's about to do is not gonna be a close fight. This is no nail biter. It's not tense. Rebel all you want. Scream and cry all you want. But he who created all things and reigns over all things, including death itself, can't be threatened. But the great deceiver, Satan, is delusional. Remember when he even thought that he might actually convince Jesus over to his side by temptation? What kind of delusion does he have to operate in to think that he could do that? But he does. Luke 4, Matthew 4. He's delusional. And his delusions are tragic. Yeah, this is it. This cancer is going to be dealt with at once and for all of time. So here comes the final battle. It's told twice. Chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. And then chapter 20, verses 7 through 10 with, well, what does this mean for those that the enemy has seemingly conquered by their death in the midst of that? The final battle of Armageddon will not be a bloodbath. We've had enough of death and destruction, and all of that just plays into the enemy's hands anyways. The blood to be shed in this final battle has already been shed. That'd be Jesus's. His own blood has already been spilt. His blood dipped, his robe dipped in blood that he wears upon that white horse. So if Armageddon isn't going to be a bloodbath, how do we make sense of those slain by the sword and the birds eating their flesh, like we see in chapter 19, verse 21. Sounds pretty battlefield-like to me, right? Well, remembering that the nature of apocalyptic literature tells us that in order for scenes from Revelation to be fulfilled does not necessarily mean that they have to specifically be played out literally. What I mean by that is, like the opening of the Lamb's scroll does not have to involve hooves and, and parchment. This gruesome scene at the end of chapter 19 calls back to language from Ezekiel's language 
back in God versus Gog that we talked about last week. In advance of that battle, God tells Ezekiel, call the birds and the wild animals to prepare for a great meal of the defeated enemy. Maybe you're experienced with military life and whether you are or not, rain the fire of hell or give them hell. Those are fierce, emotionally charged calls amidst battle. It's battlefield language that we don't understand if we don't have a battlefield mindset. Look, it's unnecessary to press on the literalness of this scene in chapter 19. It's battlefield language designed to underscore the imminence of the great victory that's about to occur. Armageddon will be a proclamation of justice, holding accountable those who refuse to repent of the ways that they participate in the destruction of God's good creation. The nature of their destruction becomes their own destiny. Chapter 20. And I want to set the stage here a bit for chapter 20 because this at very least helps me. Across what we've encountered throughout Revelation, things are primarily representative and symbolic, right? In chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, the great dragon is bound by an angel who appears to have the key of the abyss. The key controls all entrance and exit to and from the abyss. And, and I simply don't think it's consistent in all of a sudden getting to this chapter and all of a sudden switching the symbolism switch off and taking everything as a literal sequence of events. I don't mean that there's nothing literal. It's that in the midst of a work that is primarily representative in nature, unless we're given clear instructions to the contrary, we should probably continue to understand things with interpretive eyes. And I have no problem saying it over and over and over. Smart people agree with me here, and smart people disagree with me here. I'm good with that. And I'm also good with continuing to explore this, at least as it presently makes sense to me. So the bottomless pit, the abyss, this is the binding, the control of Satan. God's divine restriction that the deceptions of the enemy are not allowed to run their course without being at least limited, at least not yet. And then after that, chapter 20 says he must be released for a while. <laughs> and if you're like me, you're reading that and going, wait, why? <laughs> Keep him bound. <laughs> Well, building on what we talked about last week, remember, as was the case with Pharaoh and the sixth bull, for the enemy to have their restraints removed ultimately gives them a way toward their enmity of God and their final ruin. That's how their fall comes, self-destruction. Then John sees faithful victims of the enemy's hatred those that could not be enticed by the enemy, and it cost them dearly. The martyrs for the faith. 
these great, faithful, honorable people have their vindications. Very specifically, very specially, the kingdom honors its martyrs. But not in a solemn way, in an exuberant way. Blessed and holy are those who give their very lives for their faith. The world would see their story and their legacy as tragic. Heaven sees them as triumphant. And special attention and honor is given to their celebration and their vindication. Martyrs specifically are raised and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. The millennium. Chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So is this a literal sequence of events here, or is this Jesus' future return presented from different angles? Again, the premillennial view, we talked about this a couple of weeks back, is that resurrected believers will assist Christ's thousand-year reign as king over the earth. And as we talked about back in week five, premillennialists see a literal thousand-year period, reign of peace that is coming in the future, that will not begin until Jesus physically returns and takes his church out of the world. An act called rapture. So reading Revelation 20 is reading a clear succession of events. The amillennial view is that deceased believers now and during the thousand years, marking the time between Pentecost and Jesus' second coming, are reigning with Christ from heaven. Back in week five, we said this, once the symbols in chapter 20, just like the rest of the book, are all recognized for what they are, eschatology is actually very simple. It's a consistent depiction of the end times as a multifaceted, interconnected event, including Jesus' return, his victory, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment. And then the post-millennial view sees all of this as a future triumph of Christianity in the world. Jesus will judge mankind after he reigns on earth through his church for the millennium. And the culmination of this age will be the successful Christianization of the world before we can expect the Lord to return physically and bring a cataclysmic end to world history and usher in the new never-ending age. Main point. All three positions would agree that the main point is that Jesus will return and he will deal with evil forever and usher in the reign of his unending kingdom. 
So in case your brain hasn't hurt yet or burst yet, I've got a couple more pieces I want us to consider. The resurrection of the dead and the rapture. That's why I said at the very beginning that you may want to re-engage all of this content a second time, a time or two. It's exhausting even to, to teach. <laughs> We're not exploring these things, the resurrection of the dead and the rapture, in order to get caught in the weeds. But we have to be faithful to try to understand these pieces of eschatology because it is relevant and it's in God's word and we're supposed to explore it. So over the next 10-ish minutes, we're gonna take a couple of detours outside of Revelation to encounter these pieces. Like a lot of what we've encountered in this book, you have to encounter it outside of Revelation in order to understand what's in Revelation. It's not an exhaustive detour, but it's an important concept review. If you're a note taker, you can write the resurrection of the dead or the resurrection of the body, whichever one you want, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. It's a passage that we're gonna talk about and if you wanna study it further, I encourage you to interact with it on your own or maybe together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58, Paul explores how the resurrected bodies of the saints will participate in the resurrection of the dead. And in the Gospels, the resurrection of the dead is apparently something people like Martha clearly knew about. When she was mourning her father, Lazarus, she knew there was a resurrection on the last day, something that Jesus taught about numerous times. Paul says that we are going to be raised in new, real, imperishable, incorruptible bodies. The resurrection of the dead is not some magic trick. It will be the validation of real embodied life. Our bodies are not merely shells. You hear about this a lot of times when you go to a funeral, that the body is just a shell. No, the body is a critical part of a lived existence. What I do, what I say, how I live is a critical part of me. So in a way, perhaps this resurrection will be like an entirely new grafted life. If you understand botany, maybe you understand the idea of, of grafting something. When you graft something, even something that has been completely cut off and separated, severed from the original plant, and you graft it into a living tree, life is again possible in that new connection. But it's different than the life that it had been a part of. It's a new kind of life that takes on the kind of life of the new source, not just continuing life from the old source. And it's not instantaneous. Like when you plug the, the grafted shoot to the living plant that, that it will instantly be connected to that new kind of life. Maybe we're awaiting the full maturity of Jesus's return and the resurrection of the dead and it'll take whatever time is needed for that, that new life source to fully relive into the shoot that had been cut off severed. It's a metaphor. It's, it's an analogy, and like anything, it's a flawed analogy. 
for one, because our souls do live on even after the death of our body. And biblically, when Paul speaks of being grafted into the family of God in Romans 11, he's making a different connection that the Jews, part of the original natural plant, and the Gentiles, part of a different plant, are all being brought in together. But maybe there is something in that that idea of a grafting process that points to the great hope and the promise that we have in the resurrection. The physical, eternal body, a major hope of the Christian community. Our time next week is gonna explore some major components of that future eternal reality. So with at least the concept of the resurrection of the dead in one hand, I want us to turn to the concept of the rapture in the other. Quick disclaimer, teaching on the rapture matters, and it should be considered. But anyone that engages the concept of rapture without acknowledging that there is a surpassing aspect of mystery to it might be a little bit too deep in the weeds. There is going to be a part of how all this works out in the end times that we won't understand fully until we're going through it. Explore it, but allow the reality of engaging things from God's perspective to have a sense of mystery. So just like the word Trinity, you won't find the word rapture in your Bibles. It's a term that consolidates developments that we encounter in the Bible. Rapture means to be taken up or or snatched, (laughs) which is understandably where some people get a sense of disturbance and, and aggression. Well, that and end times books and movies. For the premillennial, the rapture or the taking up of the saints takes place before the tribulation. Jesus will take up his saints and they will be spared from that season of suffering. These people are called pre-tribs. Think left behind books and movies. For the post-millennial, the rapture will take place after the tribulation. The church will endure through that time. These people are called post-tribs. And for the amillennial, you know what? I'm gonna take a little more time on this view. Here's why. We've come this far. (laughs) Can you believe that we're through 20, almost through 20 of 22 chapters of Revelation? And I'd probably be cheating you if I didn't share an explanation of the ways that this makes sense to me. And if that's not what you're looking for, go ahead and fast forward this about 90 seconds. (laughs) You don't have that luxury. So I will, and I may be wrong. (laughs) I know that there's mystery all over this, and there may be some parts of this that I'm overemphasizing and some parts that I'm underemphasizing. I am a theological work in progress, as are you. And I'll give, if you give me some grace, I'll try to give the best exposure to understanding of how this has developed in my understanding. So this taking up, being joined with the Lord resurrection moment happens on the last day, at his second coming. The rapture or the taking up of the saints happens in the same movement as the resurrection of the dead. 
swept up with Jesus in the resurrection, leaving the corruption and despair behind. And by extension, all who have chosen not to participate in the kingdom. Now, a question for the person that holds this view is, well, what do you do with Jesus' brief mention of the rapture in Matthew 24, verse 40? You might be familiar with the passage where he says, one will be left in the field while the other is taken. Well, let's look at some context of that verse. Check out the verses prior. Jesus was in the midst of a teaching connecting the coming of the Son of Man, the cloud rider, judgment, as we've discussed, with the flood. And in verse 38, he continues, until the day where Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken away, and the other is left. It seems to me in the whole context of those verses that to be taken away in the flood or by the Son of Man is judgment. It's the one that stays, the one that stands on the last day. So Paul taught some early Christians about this who had a very valid concern. If you're a note-taking person, you probably are exhausted, by the way. You can write rapture. 1 Thessalonians, good luck with spelling. Rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. The, the people Paul was writing to had an eschatological concern of their own. Like many people of the early church, in fact, like Paul himself, these Thessalonians, they wanted, they anticipated the return of Jesus to happen in their lifetime. And they had seen loved ones die before that time came. These people, they wanted to know, does this mean they've missed out on the great promised events, including the resurrection of the dead? And Paul responds in this letter, 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead of, in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Not only will your loved ones who have fallen asleep, those who have died, not miss out, but they will be front row. 
head of the line. They will rise first, and those who are alive will join them. The dead have already been changed by the death of their physical bodies, but not their souls. And the living too will need to be changed. All of us together joining in to meet the Lord in the clouds. Our courtroom-like judgment is secure in him. And we will always be with him. Okay, coming in for a landing now. The point of all of Revelation and these particular verses in this complex chapter of chapter 20 does not intend to lead us to be predictive geniuses. It intends to leave us prepared and aware and enduring and worshipful. And Paul says, encourage one another with these things, including the final judgment before the great white throne. Last five verses of chapter 20 and last few minutes of this week's teaching. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The central locality of Revelation, the throne, before God's throne, justice. The forces of all who do not want to participate in God's kingdom, most notably Satan, are given what they want. Eternally quarantined. Never again able to corrupt God's good creation. A clean slate. Sit with that for a bit. Picture that. Now let's just hope that mankind doesn't screw things up again like we did in the first paradise, right? In fact, how can we know that sin and destruction and death won't spoil things again? How can we be confident in our eternal security? That's what we're going to explore next week. You're really going to like how this ends. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's study. If you're interested in giving for ministry and service information and much more, visit our website at timberlinechurch.org. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.